Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy and host of the Live Healthy podcast. Today I'm speaking with Sophie Smith, founder and CEO of Nabta Health. This is the Dubai-based company she launched in 2017 to create the Middle East's first hybrid model of elective preventative healthcare. Nabta Health offers a range of online testing for the detection, diagnosis, and treatment of chronic diseases. And unlike so many healthcare startups, they are focusing on women in emerging markets. Sophie also speaks about some of the biggest health problems women are facing today, getting venture capital going for women in the MENA region, and what she's faced having three children all while launching a company. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hi, Sophie. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you, Henry. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really excited to connect with you because this company that you founded, Nabta Health, has so many interesting elements to it that other people aren't doing. So <laughs> I'm, it's like if I had, you know, I couldn't have thought of it myself, but if I had been able to, I feel like it would have been like this if I had thought of a company. Oh, very kind. <laughs> <laughs> but you thought of it. Um, okay. So first of all, I just want to talk about your background a little bit because you have such an interesting background. When I look, you've, you've founded other companies and there's software development. And I think you had a, an app for a dance class and event booking. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your background before Nab to Help? Yeah, I, um, I, I was one of these people who, who arrived at the company I wanted to run through trial and error, I think. Um, I read history at Cambridge, which was the subject that I did best at school. Um, we didn't have particularly good um, science teachers. If we had, maybe I'd have ended up going into engineering because I think that's probably where my passion is. Um, and when I was at Cambridge, I got involved um, through a guy I was dating at the time with um, testing a system that used um, Bayesian methods for spoken dialogue management. It was a very, very early artificially intelligent system. And I, that was the point at which I got interested in tech. Um, when I graduated, I went to work as a technology consultant at Accenture for four years. Um, learned a lot there, but got a little bit fed up of having my learning curve dictated to me. So in 2014, I left, I went and started my first company um, that isn't actually on my LinkedIn profile. It used, it was called Smart Receipts. And um, the problem that it was trying to solve was the kind of fortnightly expense submissions that we had at Accenture, where we would take these giant wads of, uh, this sort of giant wad of receipts that we collected over the, over the two weeks, photograph them or manually input all of the um, information and then submit them to, to, to claim back the expenses. And, um, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could have an app that at point of sale recorded all of this information automatically, categorized it and submitted it. Um, 
So that was actually the very first company. And um, I rattled through companies pretty quickly, trying to work out which was the company I really wanted to run, something that I cared about. Um, I've always had a fascination with emerging markets, I think, because um, for me, it's always been the place in the world where you had the potential to have the biggest impact and where there were the most interesting problems to solve. Mm-hmm. So one of my companies built a doctor finding appointment booking platform for Pakistan um, called My Zindagi. Uh, the company just before NABD that I set up um, is a plastic recycling company um, in Sierra Leone that does waste plastics to roads. And then I came here uh, and I went to speak at a conference in Kuwait on diabetes. I'd had, again, one of my early companies had been a health tech consultancy. And there I got chatting to the organizer, not about diabetes, but about the fact that I was pregnant. And um, about a month or so later, he sent me a whole lot of stats on women's health in the region and said, do you want to do something women's health together? And for me, that was an immediate yes. And as soon as he asked, I knew that this was the company I'd kind of been waiting for um, or looking for, wanting to run. Um, So I said, give me a few months, I'll hand over my existing business interests, have have the baby, Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we'll get started. And in the end, we started now to the day my son was due, so 21st of March, 2017. Um, and since then, it's been uh, trying to build something that could materially improve health outcomes in women in the region. We settled on a on a hybrid healthcare model that looks at chronic disease, um, and then and then try to uh, and are still trying to build that in a way that um, allows us to access women at a point almost where they don't realize that they have a chronic disease or deficiency. So before they understand what symptoms look like, before they understand how the symptoms tie together, maybe once they've been bounced back and forth from doctors, you know, from one diagnosis to the next, um, when they when they only realize that they have a, or they know that they have a goal or a particular pain point that they want to address, that's the point we try to engage women um, and from there problem solve with them until we can help them understand what the kind of root cause of um, of their problems might be. Okay, so how does it work exactly? If I'm a woman in Pakistan or I'm a woman in India or Abu Dhabi, how will, how will that work to access that hybrid model? So uh, it will work differently depending on where you are in emerging markets because one of the things that is very different in this part of the world or a few of the things are um, infrastructure access and education. So the reason we decided to build a company the way that we did focused on the clinical pathway. So how you get people from symptom to diagnosis is because it then ends up being infrastructure agnostic. So we say, okay, in order to diagnose someone effectively with polycystic ovary syndrome, for example, we need to know whether they're ovulating or not, whether they have elevated levels of testosterone or other male hormones, um, if they have polycystic ovaries. Um, and then we try and work with the best digital and traditional healthcare that we have to get them through that clinical pathway. Um, so here in the UAE, uh, if you had a woman who was trying to conceive and, and I was unable to conceive, we would um, start her on our, on our mobile app, the NAVDA app, where our little um, kind of AI assistant would help her to identify whether she had some of the physical symptoms of PCOS And then if she did walk her very quickly through that clinical pathway using quite advanced digital tech, actually. So we have a we have a vaginal fertility monitor um, that detects ovulation with 99 percent accuracy in cycle. So it can tell you if you are ovulating or if you're not. Mm -hmm. Um, We would then get the woman to do a a test, 
a, a blood test either at home or in a clinic. Um, and that would confirm whether her testosterone or other male hormone levels were raised. And at that point, actually, we would have enough to diagnose her with PCOS. So we would, um, we would recommend a virtual consultation to give her a formal diagnosis. Um, if, she was in, if she was in Kenya, say, which is one of our kind of next targeted markets, um, she probably wouldn't have the app on her phone because even if she had a smartphone, maybe she wouldn't have a high, a high memory or high bandwidth phone. Um, and she'd probably only have a few apps installed on it, like Facebook, like, like WhatsApp. Mm. Um, so instead, we would engage with her initially through a series either of WhatsApp-based interactions or through SMS. Um, and then, again, perhaps she wouldn't be able to afford this um, vaginal fertility monitoring device. So instead, um, we would probably, with caveats, um, recommend that she sees one of her kind of, one of the, the people that we had um, kind of trained in her in her local village or, or region mm -hmm. um, and we would get her to go and, and to use some standard ovulation test kits that she could pee on at home yeah. and we would um, we would get her to to photograph or log the results of those and try and support her in understanding to what extent those were accurate or not because actually ovulation test kits the ones that you pee on aren't necessarily accurate if you have a hormonal imbalance because they tend, tend to show luteinizing um, hormone false positives but um but it's a it's a cheaper alternative to a um you know to a to a medical device mm -hmm. um and then mm -hmm. and then we would again try and send her for the test or ideally we'd send her a test kit that would just with a with a finger prick test for the one hormone that we really wanted to see which in this case was testosterone okay. so we would we would give her access to a a lower cost more more remote um set of care options to try and get her through the same clinical pathway, but in a slightly different way. Okay, so if you were in a place where you had the apps, it would be easier and faster, but you're you're adapting it in the different countries. And it seems to me like it, it would cut through all that complaints women have about getting a diagnosis, all the frustration of speaking to different doctors. It seems like it's like a coach to sort of help you if you have an idea of what's wrong with you. Uh, like a, like yeah. an informed doctor coach sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think one of the one of the reasons that um, we we get so frustrated actually with the healthcare system as it stands is that often we're not particularly well informed at every stage, um, and so not only are we potentially being misdiagnosed or going undiagnosed. Um, polycystic ovary syndrome, again, as an example, is seventy percent mis or undiagnosed today. Um, but we also, we, we don't really know why we're being told to do certain things. Mm -hmm. um, we, we don't feel like we're in control. We don't understand the implications of tests that we take or don't take. Mm -hmm. we, 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 we question actually, um, particularly in countries where there's a tendency to overprescribe, um, we may question whether we should be taking tests or not. And you have people who are like, well, I don't trust anything that I'm told anymore, so I'm just not going to do any of it. Um, so I think the thing that we're really trying to do with these kind of woman-led and woman-centric clinical pathways is ensure that no matter what you do, you understand why you're doing it and it's your decision. So, you know, we will say to you, we suspect because of these things that you have told us, mm -hmm. the fact that you are, um, you know, you have uncontrolled weight gain or you have some hair loss or you have hair growth on, on your face or other parts of your body, whatever it is, 
we, we suspect that you have this condition. This is what this condition is. These are its symptoms. Um, and this is how you confirm whether you have with accuracy this, these symptoms or not. And then we say, would you like to proceed? You know, so yeah. it's, it's about giving women a voice, getting women to trust themselves. Um, we know that we know our bodies better than anybody else. Um, and that we, we know when things change, we know what our not normal looks like. And I think often that's dismissed um, by um, people within traditional healthcare. And so we're trying to, we're trying to move away from that. We're trying to move to a model where, where women can learn to trust themselves again. Right. When it comes to PCOS, what, what do you think is going on? Why do you think so many women are struggling with this? And obviously that was your first focus. Um, so with, with, with polycystic ovary syndrome, um, I think one of the reasons it's so often misdiagnosed is because uh, doctors tend to start with a third symptom, um, which is the polycystic ovaries. So you'll go into a clinic and the doctor will, um, will do an ultrasound and they'll see these cysts on your ovaries. But um, firstly, th there are different kinds of cysts. There are, there, there are the, the follicular cysts. So when, you're, when the follicle that the egg matures in doesn't release its egg, but instead calcifies and attaches itself to the side of the ovary, and potentially it does that for several cycles. So you end up with lots and lots of these little pearl-like cysts all the way around the outer, kind of the outside of your ovary. Um, those are the cysts associated with polycystic ovary syndrome, but there are, there are half a dozen different kinds of cysts. You could have a, you know, a fluid-filled ovarian cyst, um, which could be quite small. It could even look like a follicular cyst, and you could have a few of them. You probably wouldn't have as many. Um, you can have hematomas, which are um, uh, cysts that are filled with blood. There are a whole load of um, different kinds. And I think often you know, a doctor will spot a couple maybe a couple on each ovary and go, oh, you've got polycystic ovary syndrome, that's it, that's done. They won't confirm whether you have a second of the three symptoms, um, which is actually required uh, officially for diagnosis. Um, they'll just kind of write it off as PCOS there and then. Mm -hmm. or, or they might ask if you have irregular cycles, but um, the problem is that we're not necessarily, without having that little window inside ourselves, the best judge of what's going on in our own bodies at all times. So um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dichotomy. Like we, we will know that there is something wrong with us. We will suspect that it is something, but there are often, um, there are often, there's a little bit of extra help that we need to confirm with certainty that we do or do not have a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And that that is usually today done in a clinic. That certainty is given to us in a clinic with an ultrasound, with a blood test. We're trying to give women the power to give themselves that certainty at home or remotely, you know, wherever they are. Um, so the fact that the fact that doctors start with what is actually a secondary symptom and often, you know, make the diagnosis there and then is what leads to it being so often misdiagnosed. And it is a, it is a really um, bizarre thing because it's so common. Mm -hmm. um, it's indicated in 70% of female infertility. Uh, it's the most common cause of female infertility. And, um, and it's also got a very strong correlation with metabolic disease. So um, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, obesity, all of these things um, occur when women have PCOS and are often the cause of it. Mm. Um, so it should be 100% you know, accurately diagnosed. 
but but it's not. What other um, female conditions are you going to be focusing on? So we're we're doing we're looking at chronic disease, many um, of which will be hormone diseases, um, starting with those that affect women during uh, during the period before falling pregnant and then immediately afterwards. Um, so the reason we started looking at chronic diseases like polycystic ovary syndrome um, in women who are trying to conceive is because we needed a we needed a, a like a, a, re- a very real pain point, um, you know, a time in a woman's life where she was highly motivated to change the way that she lived and ate, mm-hmm. because most of the recommendations that we give to women are around diet and lifestyle, and as as we all know, it's very difficult to to make that change unless you have a very good reason to do so. Mm. And two of the strongest um, motivating factors for women are um, probably a diagnosis of infertility or, or a diagnosis of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started with women who were trying to conceive. Um, and then we realized actually that with women who had these chronic diseases like PCOS, um, it also made them much higher risk during pregnancy. Mm. And so if we were helping these women to conceive, we had a duty to then support them through what could be a higher risk pregnancy. If you have PCOS, for example, you're three times more likely to develop gestational diabetes. So that's actually the next condition that we're looking at. Um, 38% of pregnancies um, or 38% of pregnant women in the UAE are diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Um, And about one in four babies is born with hypoglycemia. So with too much sugar in their system. Wow. Um, Wow. So GD is the next one we're looking at. And then we will, we will continue to look at other chronic diseases that impact women during pregnancy. Um, and then look at, um, again, a kind of broader spectrum of hormone related disease. So things like hypothyroidism, hyperprolactinemia, um, before moving on to autoimmune diseases like endometriosis, a whole load of um, different diseases that affect the gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've, we've got a long list, honestly, Amory. <laughs> Well, it just seems that even the healthiest people I know are struggling with something. And it's sort of like, to me, a little bit like the elephant in the room, because everyone seems like, I I think we were speaking before and you used the term accidentally well, which I, I really liked because I don't know what's going on, whether it's toxins in our environment, stress, all sorts of factors. It just seems like it's very difficult with the food system. It just seems like it's very difficult in 2022 to be in tip top shape. Do you? Yeah. So that, that really lovely phrase, I have to credit to a woman who used to sit on our board, Dr. Brigitte Pinuski, okay. who's one of the, um, the most uh, sort of experienced, knowledgeable people in, in, in deep tech. So in blockchain based systems um, in, in healthcare, she's a medical doctor by background. And I think, you know, she she looked at um, particularly populations in the US and said, where have all the healthy people gone? Mm. Um, but uh, no, you're absolutely right. I think there are so many, there are so many um, toxins in our environment, um, whether it's things like hormones in the water system. Um, in, I mean, in Belgium, for example, there's enough hormone, there's enough artificial hormone particularly estrogen in the um, in the water system to actually have a contraceptive effect um, and that's partly because of the contraceptive contraceptives that 
humans take, but it's also because of the hormones that are pumped into, into animals mm. um, to make them grow faster. Mm-hmm. And then being excreted into the waste system. Exactly. Wow. Uh, so a lot of excess hormone in our environment. And, and this, is having a, this is also having a very negative effect on human fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of excess estrogen that women are being exposed to when babies are in utero is reducing the number of healthy gametes. So um, sperm making uh, ability of, it's reducing the sperm making ability of men. Um, mm. And male sperm count has dropped by 50% in the last 30 years as a result. So, and, and, then, and then add on top of that, a lot of, a lot of chemicals and other things that act as endocrine or hormone disruptors. Then add to that the fact that within our, within our food chain, there are so many hidden sugars. Mm-hmm. And hidden sugars are everywhere. And hidden sugars are hidden in things that people do not think of as sugary, whether it is um, breakfast cereals or- Pickles, pickles. Or, Pickles, ketchup, <laughs> yeah. you know, any of the sauces that you love, those are really high in sugar in, in, in wine and mm-hmm. alcohol. People forget that, you know, you, you, you uh, ferment wine with sugar, mm-hmm. um, ferment grapes with sugar. So there's a huge amount of sugar and alcohol. Um, and, and this is, this uh, prevalence of sugar is probably the most noxious thing when it comes to our ability to stay healthy because over time with this exposure, and it's very, very difficult to avoid sugar, you basically have to avoid anything in the middle section of the supermarket. Yeah, um, you know, stay in the aisles with the fruit and vegetables and the refrigerated containers. As soon as you move into the packeted and um, canned sections, it all goes downhill. But there, there are so many of them. And, you know, we live in a we live in a country um, here in the UAE where a lot of food is imported. Mm. Um, and, and so it's difficult to have access to that, you know, very high quality locally produced food. Although again, that, that is changing. So I think it's going to be a really interesting kind of 10, 20 years here in the UAE. Mm. I think there's been a, an acknowledgement during COVID that um, population security um, is, is a little precarious, particularly when you import, you know, the nation's food supply. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already seen a huge amount of money going into food tech in the last two years. And now there's this new um, food tech valley that's going in near al mm-hmm. um, And more and more is being done to, um, to irrigate and green the desert and to grow food locally. Um, I think this is probably going to be somewhere where we suddenly see actually the amount of locally grown um, toxin-free food increase very rapidly, but it's not necessarily going to be the same in other parts of the world. That is okay. That's amazing that you see it. First of all, thanks for pointing out the missing piece about the dropping sperm counts. Cause I, when I, I, I missed that the in utero part, like I had always missed that yeah. I'm reading about sperm counts. It's like, it's actually happening from birth, which explains a lot. Second. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right about the egg tech. It's, and the way you frame it is so it's so apt because I mean, there are, springing up all over the place. I'm getting press releases about locally grown, this locally grown, that fish. Like, I think you're right. I think this is going to be, and no one's really paying attention to it, but this is the part of the world where you're probably going to be able to get the best food. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the future. And the government is investing in this so smartly. Um, but a, one thing about sugars, I mean, I'm also reading so much about inflammatory oils and I'm so curious. I feel like in the next years, we're going to see P 
people addressing this because even in supposedly healthy foods, if they're not cooked with a good oil, um, I think that's also causing problems. Do you, do you, do you know, hear about this? Yeah. So I think the, um, I think the, the, yeah, you, you highlight a really interesting thing, which is inflammation. Mm. So along with, um, along with metabolic disease, inflammation is the other great worry, I guess, for, um, for human populations. And the thing that is again, most likely to result in chronic disease later on in life, um, particularly things like cancers. Mm -hmm. um, so we know now uh, that there is a, that there's a huge connection between the gut and the brain. And in fact, it's right now referred to as the gut brain. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that autoimmune disease is very likely linked to inflammation in the gut. So if you have, had a very unhealthy period in your life if you don't have a huge number of good bacteria in your gut if you've had a parasite if you've picked up a parasite that's potentially you know run rampant and been undiagnosed for a while uh, it can cause all sorts of disease to appear not necessarily immediately but potentially you know a couple of years down the line everything from chronic migraines to um hashimoto's to endometriosis I mean any of these diseases that have a my goodness we've been so tra traumatized as a body we're now going to start attacking ourselves. right um effect so uh yeah I mean there, there are lots of substances again and I, it's getting worse because the nutrient the way that these products are produced is worse like they're, they're, we're, we're farming things in nutrient depleted soils. Mm. We are eating again, you know, consuming animal products for, from animals that have been pumped full of hormones. And so even if it is, you know, fresh milk, um, that is, it, it, it's, if it's been produced from a cow, there has been stress. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, that pump full of hormones, it's, it's whole life. It's, it's not going to be milk that your body gets on very well with. Um, and so the ability for our bodies to stay well, accidentally well, I would say is all but disappeared. Unless you live in a part of the world where you only, because you live on a farm, um, because you live in a very remote part of the world that is today untouched by the fast food industry, um, it, it's very, very difficult to um, live a healthy life without making dozens of conscious healthy living decisions every single day it's funny isn't it because the parts of the world that people may have looked down on you know parts of africa for example as being backward or whatever are the the places where people are actually the healthiest yeah and you know what i think that's one of the things um i think that's one of the things that motivates me most to um build NAFTA across emerging markets is that um this is this is still it's, it's still a part of the world where there's the opportunity to do everything right. Mm. Um, and that's it. We know chronic disease is increasing here faster than it is anywhere else mm -hmm. because, because fast food chains are moving across um, Africa at astonishing speed. Um, because uh, people are, you know, moving into towns, industry is, is, is ramping up very fast. And it's not like industry is it's sort of there's a there's a like an industrial revolution that's happening when people still ate well this industrialization is coinciding with access to food that is really bad for you and so chronic disease is is i mean just i mean it like 
increasing here faster, almost two, three times faster than in other parts of the world. Um, a study by Frost and Sullivan, I don't know if it's published yet, shows that 97% of women in emerging markets will struggle to conceive in the next 10 years. You know, that's our lifetime. That's not 50 years from now. That's, that's right. in the next decade, um, mostly because of the prevalence of chronic disease right. um, and because of the way it affects both um, women and men. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I think this is, this is a part of the world that can still build better systems, feed healthier populations, um, you know, do, do things better. And it's really key that we, we support that activity and we help build sustainable businesses and we try and educate people as, as they're having access to this, these digital technologies for the first time about what healthy living looks like. Yeah. Um, uh, you've also identified a, a big gap in this region with um, your plan for the 2022 Female Angels Investor Network. You recently had a successful funding round. Um, your network, you aim to have 2022 female investors across the MENA region by the end of the year. This is so cool. Can you tell me how this came about? and what your, your goals are for it and just about female investors here in the region? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I will qualify our successful funding round with, I had to speak to a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, over 300, I reached out to over 350 funding bodies, so institutions globally. We didn't have a single institution invest in this round. I spoke to maybe between 150 and 200 angel investors. Mm-hmm. In the end, we had 20 come in and two angel syndicates. Um, and it was that process that made me realize that actually today there still isn't enough female friendly capital around. Um, and there's been a study and, and, and this was proven in the in the statistics in terms of the, the percentage of venture capital closed by female founded businesses in MENA last year, which was 1.2%. Hmm. Um, and again, I try and put that in real terms for people. You know, if I took my son and my daughter and I sat them side by side on the step, and I took a jar full of, I know this is a, a living, a live healthy podcast, but if I, if I took a jar of chocolate <laughs> coins and I distributed them the way that venture capital is distributed between men and women today or male and female founded businesses today, my son would walk away with 99 and my daughter would have one. Oh. And it doesn't take two like headstrong toddlers to tell you that that is just not fair. Mm. There would be, and there would, there would be bloodshed, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and nobody would end up with the chocolate coins and they would all end up back in the jar and they get one each for the next right. 50 days. Right. Um, right. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the amount of female friendly capital is just not there. And there was a study done in the US that showed that if you give um, female billionaires and male billionaires money, they invest it in male and female founded companies in very different ways. So um, male billionaires invested, I think um, maybe something like six or 7% in female founded companies and about 14% in co-founded, so male and female led. Mm-hmm. And female um, billionaires invested about 20, almost 25% in female led and almost 25% again in, in co-led. Mm-hmm. And so already more than double the number of companies with female founders got investment from female billionaires. And so we know that if we increase the number of women investing, there will be a secondary effect of more female-led companies getting investment. Mm-hmm. And so that was the initial impetus for the movement. But since we started it, and 
when we when when I, I and I started with a LinkedIn post and out of frustration. I want to start this movement. We're going to identify 2022 female angel investors for the for emerging markets by the end of 2022. Um, the the most important thing um, was the was the KPI because there's a lot of talk about about changing things, but I think people can really get behind a number, and so having like the 2022 female angels movement was was meant to have that number. Um, and now we have a steer co of men and women, almost 30 people in total who are working to hit that target by the end of the year. Um, but again, I think once I sort of sat with the movement and um, things are busy at NABTA, so I'm not able to give it as much attention as in other circumstances I might like, but and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> uh, uh, the more we sat with this movement, the more we realized actually that there was significant financial inequity between men and women as well. Mm-hmm. You know, women mm-hmm. go into retirement with a 40% less of a pension and women live longer. Mm-hmm. Um, women don't have diversified investment portfolios. A lot of women don't get talked to about investment by their parents. I mean, did your mother or father talk to you about what you were going to do with your money? God, no. No. And, and this resonates with me so much because it wasn't until maybe three, four, five years ago that I thought I have to stop just farming this out to this financial guy. Um, I have to start understanding and taking the reins. It took me till my forties, like mid you yeah. know, forties, because it was because you're not talked to about it. You don't know how to approach it. It's just this big, like, ah, I don't know, la la la, you know? And, and a lot of my friends who are married have absolutely no idea what's being done with their money. <laughs> it scares me for that. No, you know? and, 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 the, and, the, and the thing is that they, they, they probably do like, even, even women who think, well, I've never had, like, I've never managed money. I've never made an investment decision. They almost certainly have. Yes. I have a lot of friends who are the brains behind the investment of their kind of collective finances mm-hmm. but take no credit for it don't consider it to be their investments don't consider them you know to be the ones investing the money but they're, they're doing it they're doing the due diligence on companies mm-hmm. they are speaking to the fund managers um they are you know pooling the funds they are allocating them they are managing them you know that if yeah. they have if they have real estate as an asset then they are they are managing everything to do with that with that piece of property but still they're, they're not thinking about them as their investments it's their husband's investment that they're looking after and I think there's a there's got to be this this acknowledgement that uh we're capable of investing our own money not only are we capable of it it's really good fun you know it that's, is fun to have that's a diversified thing. investment portfolio and it's not this monolith that you can't understand. It's like anything else. You just you just start paying attention and then you become interested. At first, it's horrible because you don't understand. And then you start paying attention and it's fun. Yeah, you're right. It is. So it's cool yeah. to see this. It's really cool to see this, to give women the opportunity to invest as well as to give uh, companies that might need the investment and the thoughtfulness so that a woman will bring to their company to it. It's really, really cool. I think it's really cool. And then you did something, another thing that you talk about on LinkedIn, I love is that you, I mean, you really do do it all because you've had three children since you've launched this company. And I know you're very, you have, you're very strict about the time you spent with your kids, which you have to be like, I don't mean strict. I mean, like you're very, uh, you've described being very organized about this is when I'm going to be with my kids. So they don't miss out and work doesn't take over. 
but you've talked about on LinkedIn about the double standards for female entrepreneurs. Can you talk about that? What that's been like a little bit? Yeah, I think um, I think the the thing that I I don't know I, I I grew up and I was one of eight children, and there are four girls and four boys um, among my siblings, and we had we had a very equal upbringing. And we had equal opportunities in terms of the things that we could do. And when we went to university, et cetera. And then it was only when I emerged into the world of work that I was suddenly hit. And only really when I had children by the inequality still in the system. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the way that you are treated, in terms of the uh, ambition that you're allowed to have, people hand you ceilings all the time. Um, People stop describing your career as a job and start referring to it as a hobby. Oh, you know, you're, you know, like when I, I would tell people about NAPT and people would be like, well, you're, it's nice that you found something to keep you so busy. (laughs) What what do you mean? Yeah, this is my, you know, this is my company. This is my, it's my passion. Really, it's my obsession. It's the way that I'm going to, it's the way that I'm going to change the world. What do you mean I found something to keep me busy? (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I, and I, and, and that was a really hard lesson for me, honestly, Anne-Marie, because, because I, um, there are things that you can change and there are things that you can't change. And I'm not someone who can change the person that I am. I think um, I, one of the things I'm very conscious of with LinkedIn is that it's a, it's a platform that allows you to, to have a voice in the, in the working world. Um, and, I, and I want it to be authentic for me and I hear a lot from other entrepreneurs that um that so much of what they wish they knew was hidden you know they wish they knew that actually although suddenly there's this big announcement when you close around Mm. it's taken a long time and it's been a real struggle Mm. you know they know that you have children and that you are happy to prioritize and spend time with them because they want to know that it's okay for them to do the same thing yeah. Um, honestly, having having kids and and Nabta at the same time. Nabta, we we started the eleven days before my son was born. My gosh! So it was my first child, but then the other three came thick and fast. And um, I had my daughter when we were raising and closing our pre-seed round. I had my third child, William, when we were raising and closing our seed round. And um, there is no better time to have kids than when you have a company because you will be a better entrepreneur as a result. Hmm. You will prioritize more. You will suffer fools less. Um, every decision you make to, to work is a decision you are making to not be with your children. And so I'd had companies before NABTA, but I am a much, much better business person since I, since, since I had children. Oh, I love that. I love that. No one ever... T- that's amazing. All anyone would ever think. And on the outside, all anyone can ever see are prob- what the potential problems are, right? Like they can only see the, like when you mentioned that you got the funding, people can only see that. They can't see all that went into it. And oh my gosh, three kids and starting a company. Well, that must be hard. <laughs> I just love that you're talking about how it's made you better. It's, and it gives, they give me, oh, you know, running a company is a roller coaster. Um, you have, it, if you if, if if applying for a job is bad, you know, when I think about how many times I've, I effectively got rejected in the bid to secure investment at the different stages, I mean, it's it, it's like a couple of hundred, probably right. more 
you know, rejections for a job, it's a, it's a lot of no's. You get a lot of no's. And the thing that my children have done for me is, is, is give me sanity and keep me balanced. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to ride that roller coaster and believe that, you know, and, and kind of to get swept up in it and, and lose a central perspective on what this business means. And even though, you know, I, I, I frequently with NABTA deconstruct it completely in my head. Like I'll sit there and I'll and I'll go through I'll go through all of the worst case scenarios, not in a in a doom and gloom way, but in a if this was to happen, mm. what what's the effect on me, on the family, on on my on my on my career, on um, on my friendships? Because we had a lot of friends, you know, who mm. invested in in the pre-seed um, round at, mm. at NAPTA. Um, and I and I walk through that. And at the end of it, I always come to the conclusion that while you're alive, you've probably still got your friends, your kids are still there. Um, you've got a lot of learnings. You know, this was this is a is has been a has been a journey, um, and and you you will be able to you'll be able to go on. Like that's the kind of conclusion I always come to. But it's um it's a again a thing that I was less able to do with my early companies, and I had to liquidate one of them. Um, I liquidated the UK arm of the company that was building a doctor finding appointment booking platform in Pakistan because our investor withdrew his investment overnight on Christmas Eve. And right. so I had to go into the office on 4th of January and tell everybody, 10 people in the office, guys, sorry, that's it. Time to go home. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, yeah. They, they give me perspective. Amazing. And like to do as much as you've done, that would be strange, I think, if you didn't have to liquidate one of those projects, really. Like... I don't know. Oh, it's, just, it's important. It's mm. very, very, very important. Oh, again, to realize that, you know, it, I mean, in, in all, in all, um, uh, in all ways, it, it was a failure. That business was a failure uh, as in it failed to do what we set out to do, which was to create a sustainable, you know, profitable business. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also okay. Yeah. You know, like it is perfectly okay to fail. In fact, the more you fail, the more perspective, again, that it gives you. Um, and you learn what good looks like and also what bad looks like. How can you know what good like looks like until you know what bad looks like? Oh, I love this. I, I failed at something recently and I, I've been explaining to people, you know, I felt terrible about it. And I said, I, I failed at it. And they're like, you don't say fail. And I'm like, no, no, because that's what happened. But it's because I tried something new for the first time. I, like it would, of course, I like why it's weird how people you want me to say it, right? Like I'm supposed to use some other language to make you comfortable about my thing I failed at, but I'm owning. It's very normal. It's I like, there's lots of people talking about this, how you have to be comfortable with it, but you, you know, it's nice to hear you. You talk have to be comfortable it. with failure. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I think it's, you know, we very quickly attach a lot of negative connotation to everything yeah. now. Yeah. Um, you know, criticism, actually criticism as a word is neither positive nor negative. You can have a lot of positive criticism, but we assume it's a negative thing. And so criticism is bad. Actually, criticism is essential. And, and failure is, is as, a, as essential as success. Yes, it is. Anyway, thank you so much, Sophia. It's really great to talk to you. And it's, I'm so interested to see where Nab to Health goes. And hopefully we'll speak to you again. Thanks, Henry. Have a great day. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.